If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we've got another lecture from our History Weekend events last autumn. While we're not currently holding any live events, tickets are now on sale for our next virtual event, in which historian Tom Lysons will be discussing Edward the Confessor. That takes place on Thursday the 20th of August, and you can find out more at historyextra.com forward slash events. But in the talk for today's podcast, the popular historian and medievalist Yanina Ramirez is speaking about medieval Wonder Women. you are here and it's raining and it's windy and I love you all for coming thank you um I'm very excited to be here very happy to be back in Winchester and I have customized this talk for you I have poured blood sweat and tears into the presentation that you're going to hear today which is new stuff as Dave very kindly said I'm working on a new book which is slightly killing me but I'm enjoying every second of it. It's going to be called Femina, and it's going to be a study of lost voices from the medieval past. And what I'm going to try out with you today is some of the things that I think are important about where we're going as historians, where we're going with our discipline of history, because we are living through times of great change, startling Scary, it might feel, but the historians in 50 years' time will be writing about the era we're living through as one of huge epochal change. So I've tried to write a book that will (laughs) take on board all that massive uh, changes that I want to see in terms of the discipline, but I'm looking at it through the focus of people I feel I know and love from the past. I've called this talk Medieval Wonder Women. Um, Yes, Wonder Woman, come on. Uh, but the women I'm talking about are truly extraordinary. And what I think I want to sort of ease you in with as we go into the talk is this idea that so many of our modern notions of division are modern, are recent. So I did a series with David Olashoga, Black and British, where we looked at um, blackness, at racism, but going right back into the medieval period. And what you see is that so many of these divisions actually arose in the last couple of hundred years. They weren't there before. And similarly, in terms of our attitudes towards women, in terms of how we divide out society between the good and the, uh, the, the good and the great and then everyone else, a lot of that came in in the 18th, 19th century, and we're still living with that legacy today. We are still under the thumbs of the great men. So that's why I'm being a bit revolutionary and talking Wonder Woman. Um, This is me. I think you know me, hopefully. I get very excited about what I do. (laughs) My levels of enthusiasm are, uh, are, I think, 
hard to take sometimes. The curators at the British Museum, when I was making my latest series, Raiders of the Lost Past, were positively exhausted after three days of me whooping and squealing at every single thing that came out of a case. But that's me. Uh, my poor mum has kept every school report I've ever had since I was four. And in every single one, the word enthusiastic comes up. And by the time I was about 10, she was starting to dislike the word enthusiastic. <laughs> but but this, is, um, this is how I live and breathe my subject. I am an interdisciplinary cultural historian because I don't, when I was doing, when I fell in love with history and I went on to do history A-level, my intention was to be a historian and study history at university. But what I found was, the more I studied it within a school environment, the more I studied it within a university, the passion was slipping out of it for me. I was being told to read very dense data, documents. I was being told that dates and individuals and battles are the things that matter. What I always wanted to get to was that the idea that hum human beings, people like us, walked before us. And what did they touch? What did they see? What did they encounter? How did they, what was the world like around them? So that's the way I've always approached my love of the past. When I touch these objects, I'm touching something that lay in the ground for 1,400 years. And my hand is where their hands were. I get that most strongly when I read manuscripts, medieval manuscripts. As I turn the page, I know the hand of someone a thousand years turned that same corner. And it is a strange and moving experience. I do enjoy my job. Um, I like to... Um, <laughs> I like to get really close to the experience. This didn't make it into the programme, sadly. And I had so many messages going... Oh my God, Dr. Ramirez, how did you resist the urge to put, not put on the Sutton Who helmet? Well, I did put it on. It's just we didn't show me putting it on. I also danced a 70s disco move in it. Um, but again, it's part of getting close to the past. And in that series, which I absolutely felt honoured to make, what the programme I think that really affected me the most was the, the one on the Lion Man. Um, because... When I went out, when I make a programme, I tend to research very, very heavily before I, I go out to film. And I immerse myself in everything I can get my hands on. And I knew that this was going to be the oldest pieces that I'd been encountering. Because, of course, The Lion Man, now dated to 40,000 years ago. 40,000! And I don't think I really took on board how much of... The, of, of you know, a stretch it was for my historical imagination to go back 40,000 years until I got there, until I stood in these caves, at these portals, these liminal spaces that seem to connect the earthly with something else, something, something that we can't really get to. But when I was in that space, there were the oldest musical instruments found in, that, in those same caves, pipes and flutes made out of bone, out of ivory, out of bird feathers. Um, and this idea, we had a fire burning in one of the most powerful of these German caves. And the fire was burning, the smoke was going, um, drums were beating, there was rhythm, there was sound. There was this weird sort of sense that that's what the original setting of an object like the Lion Man could have been. And I was, had the honour of... Um, spending the day with Wolf, this wonderful reconstruction artist, who'd made a copy of the Lion Man using the original tools and using, instead of a mammoth's tusk, a bit tricky to get on eBay nowadays, um, 
some responsibly sourced ivory, which and he applied all the same techniques by looking at the original to make this, and it is incredibly faithful to the original. Now, me being me, we were sat on a hill talking, chatting, and Wolf was very enthusiastic too. And I picked up a rock and started smacking his artwork <laughs> because that's uh, surely what you do, isn't it? Um, but as we tapped away at this thing, something quite magical happened that he didn't know was going to happen, that I didn't know was going to happen, but it was very exciting. Um, I don't know if we've got sound, actually. Oh, I should have told them it was sound. What you can see is me tapping away. Oh. Good work, IT. Fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I just said it. Um, so it has this rhythm and it has tonal qualities, which of course it would. It's a hollowed out object with sections that are thicker than others. It's, it's got this other life outside of a museum case, outside of being a historical curiosity, where it exists in a space and where it's brought to life again. And I feel hugely honoured that I'm able to have these experiences because all the time I was working as an academic, sat in a Bodleian library surrounded by dusty books, those experiences bring a dimension to the study of the past that no amount of book reading can do. Um, I've thought long and hard about the sort of historian I want to be and the sort of evidence I use. So some of you might know that I run the art history courses at Oxford University. I am on paper an art historian because I'm quite uh, stimulated by visual materials, by artefacts. But um, all the evidence that we can use and what I'm trying to use in my new work, they come under many different headings. So just a few for written evidence, for example, letters, diaries. I spent last night chatting to Irvin Finkel of the British Museum, who is one of the most, the largest of life characters I've ever met. And he runs the diary. Uh, it's, it's a a repository for diaries in London. And they collect all the diaries that people are thinking of throwing out from their homes. But they've become a really important source of documentation for the past 200 years. Because of course, most of our historical documents that survive are possibly lying to us. This is the age of fake news, everybody. This is the age of fake images, isn't it? But the truth about our historical documentation, if it survives, and if it's written down and it comes down to us, say, a thousand years, like the material I use, it will have a very clear agenda, a very clear bias. Um, one of the things I'm exploring at the moment is witness statements. I'm really interested in detective novels. And the idea that three people would witness a car crash, each one of those three people, if they're asked to write a report of what they saw, will write slightly different accounts. And each of those accounts will be filtered through the sort of person they are, their interests, their concerns. What if one of those people had a vested interest in saying, oh, no, I didn't crash, Gov, it wasn't me. Will that report be different from the others? And that's what we get with our historical written documentation. There's always a slant, there's always an angle. The diary, however, should technically be about as true as it gets. Anyone keep diaries in this room? That's a dying art, isn't it? Well done, keep it up. <laughs> um, the diary technically is supposed to be a sort of true account from ourselves to ourselves of what we're experiencing, but even that will be filtered. Um, but these are the sorts of things we can compare and contrast as a historian. So diaries, poems, prose. I did literature at university in the end because I think... The literary outpourings of a culture of a time can give you a real sense of the spirit of the age, what's going on. Manuscripts, I would say that, um, and historical accounts. Now there is a glut 
of data that we get through social media. And actually, the dying art of journalism, the dying art of a good newspaper review that's supposed to give something impartial, something objective, is really, really becoming difficult to find. Video, visual evidence, video footage, photographs, drawings, material finds, and then bigger archaeological things, bones and burials, buildings and landscapes. Uh, poor Dave had to pull me off the street walking up to, uh, to here today because I was walking along like this. <laughs> Just looking at the carvings and looking at the things up above us and around us in this magnificent city. Winchester is so important to the history of this country. I was doing a talk the other day in Malmesbury. I said, you know, London wasn't always the capital. What? Yes, of course it wasn't. Winchester was the power hub for the period that I am most in love with, uh, the early medieval period. So the reason I'm showing you all these types of evidence is because technically, with it, if you wanted to study this evidence, these are the disciplines that they get split up to, boxed into. So written evidence might come under literature or history. Um, manuscripts might come under art history, paleography. We have this arbitrary nature of splitting up our subjects that's, that really, a hundred years ago, wouldn't have existed. A true uh, curious, a, a person with a curious mind, let's take Leonardo da Vinci. He's a nice, good, rounded example, isn't he? Um, <laughs> perfectly average. Most of us are like Leonardo, I'm sure. Um, but the way that the past would be embraced would be as a part of study of the history of science, of mathematics, of astrology, of astronomy, of physics. All these things are connected. And now we have boxed our educational system up. So a child is told to walk from a class on art down the corridor to a class on history. And never the twain shall meet. So I thank you. Thank you very much, my love. I have an eight and a 10-year-old. I have a vested interest in this. So it is about rebuilding our discipline. It's about reassessing how we look at our information and our evidence. And I want to blow this apart and use all this evidence because when it comes to my period a thousand years ago, it is hard to get the documentation that you want. If I was studying something that happened a hundred years ago, I would be exhausted just reading copies of the Times reports on it, but not when you go back into the early medieval period. So this cross-disciplinary cultural approach is important. It also allows us to write people back into history who've been excluded. Now, oh, this is, a, this is always a kind of dividing one in the room. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Thomas Carlyle. Um, I'm not. <laughs> Another round of applause. I am doing well today. <laughs> um, Thomas Carlyle wrote this seminal text in 1840 on heroes, hero worship, and the heroic in history. Lovely title, really inclusive, isn't it? Um, and in that, he makes the suggestion of why great men deserve to be seen as heroes and to be hero worshipped. This is just one extract. Please read it. It's brilliant. Have a glass of wine, read it, and have a giggle, because this is how far things seem to have moved in the last hundred odd years. Universal history, the history of what man has accomplished in this world, is at bottom the history of the great men who have worked here. They were the leaders of men, these great ones, these modelers, patterns, and in a wide sense, creators of whatsoever the general mass of men contrived to do or attain. All things that we see standing accomplished in the world are properly the outer material results, the practical realization and embodiment of thoughts 
that dwell in the great men sent into the world, the soul of the whole world's history, it may justly be considered with a history of these. You are allowed to boo. <laughs> Ooh, panto. <laughs> um, in this idea, this, I mean, this does dominate the history, uh, the way that history is studied. And I mean, people like Napoleon exemplify the great man theory. Here's another quote. Genius is not the result of compounding talent. How many battalions are the equivalent of a Napoleon? How many minor poets will give us a Shakespeare? How many run-of-the-mill scientists will do the work of an Einstein? Um, it's, it's very, very exclusive and exclusionary, this way of looking at the past. It's still the case that if you go into a bookshop, you will see a lot of biographies of great war leaders, great kings, great queens, the, the upper echelons of society. But I think we're after something a bit more now. The digital revolution has, has changed the way we engage with research, certainly has for me. And one of the first things that really flourished when the internet came in was um, studies in hereditary and family trees. So right from the off, people were using this new resource to find out about their own history, their own past. And that's the stories, in a way, that we want to see us in the past. Um, I do think things are changing. This is you know, a sign that we're looking for others. We're looking for other voices. We're looking for other people to represent us. And I don't know if you saw David's amazing series, A House Through Time. Some of you saw it? This, for me, is the, is the future of history TV. It was social history. It was saying, this is a building that has existed for a couple of, for many, a few hundred years, and in its walls, human stories have played out. And we can get to them. We can research the archives. We can find the, the documents that bring these people to life. So I think we're looking at a new form of the discipline, which is interdisciplinary, and which is looking for other voices, looking for lost voices. And my little contribution to this revolution is to use the biggest prism of the population who've been excluded from history, 50% of it, women, as a lens to see if we can apply these new techniques and if it's worthwhile. Now, many women have featured very, very heavily in the studies of the past. Here are some of the big hitters, Elizabeth I, Anne Boleyn, of course. She was the one that got me into history in the first place. Um, Queen Victoria and Joan of Arc. All of these women have been well-documented, well-researched, and I think you know, they, they, they do shine a, a path forward for others. But they are still exceptions to the rule, aren't they? They are all, I mean, apart from Joan, they're royal. They are, um, t they are the rich and the wealthy and the, and the, the separate. But I wanted to start with someone who was very powerful and then work our way back and see if through these other women who are lesser known, we can get to a deeper understanding of the early medieval period. So this is my heroine for the first part. God, I mustn't run out of time. <laughs> this is my heroine for the first part of this talk, Athelflaed. Lady of the yay to Athelflaed. Woo! She's finally being recognised. It's only taken 1,100 years. Yeah! Um, it was her anniversary last year and I was heavily involved because I, uh, I'm involved with Gloucester History Festival and in Gloucester, she is the most important woman ever. But she's incredible and the more I've discovered about her, the more 
the more fueled up I feel about finding truth in history. Because one of the darkest things about Athelflaed's story is how she was deliberately written out of history. So her brother eventually succeeds her, Edward, and he and his court are responsible for that most seminal of documents, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. All historical studies of this period go back to this very important set of chronicles that were being kept in monasteries all over the country and were giving the legitimate, uh, true account of what had happened historically in those events. But Edward deliberately had her written out of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for, we will see, probably political reasons, probably to try and ensure that the kingdom would actually gel better and that they wouldn't be divided between Mercia and Wessex, that they would be able to rebuild and regroup. But it does mean that she leaves this hole that we want to try and find out about. Fortunately, she was a bit of a legend in her own lifetime. So other people were writing about her. Viking writers were putting down information about her. The Irish annals and chronicles were mentioning this amazing woman. The Welsh were writing down information about Athelflaed. So there are documents, but we play the detective and we have to piece them together. Now, interestingly, she was quite popular with the Normans. And Henry of Huntingdon, a Norman chronicler in the 12th century, said, she was so powerful that in praise and exaltation of her wonderful gifts, some call her not only lady, but even king, more illustrious than Caesar. King. In this book I'm writing, there is a Polish princess who also gets called king. I quite like it when a lady's called a king. It's quite good. Um, bit of an upgrade. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, but Athel Flads did some extraordinary things. And what I want to start off thinking about with her time is the climate of fear that she was growing up in. Because as she is being, um, as she's born and as her parents get married, um, so she's the daughter of Alfred the Great, of course, she's born in 870. Five years earlier is this absolutely cataclysmic series of events, the arrival of the great heathen army. Now, many of you, and if you have bought my books, which are available in the shop, and I will be signing after the event, um, in those books, I, I do a lot of work to try and rehabilitate the reputation of the Vikings. Look at that. I hate that gesture, but the Vikings. Um, the Scandinavian peoples for a good few hundred years. Um, and I rehabilitate them because I think that they were cast in a certain light as brutes, as terrors, um, as, as very dirty, unhygienic people. Uh, all of which is wrong. But there is this concerted change in their interaction with Britain in, the eight, in 865 because they do actually put together a coordinated army to attack and take over completely what we now call today England, modern-day England. So Athelflaed's growing up in this, this atmosphere. 
Um, her kingdom, what she will later be associated with Mercia, her mother was Mercian, um, was the greatest of the kingdoms in the 8th century. So you can see from about 730 to about 796, Mercia was the biggest, the strongest, the most powerful of the kingdoms. And the art that survives from this time is testament to what a rich and spectacular place it must have been. Presumably, it might have hit some of your radars, the discovery of the Staffordshire Hoard. It was kind of an exciting day. It was my child's christening, and I got a phone call uh, with the family all around me, friends, everyone. Have you heard about the discovery of the Staffordshire Hoard? Baby, promptly handed over, run off, <laughs> find out about the Staffordshire Hoard. Get your priorities in order. Um, the Staffordshire Hoard, extraordinary find. And only now, 10 years down the line, are we truly understanding the scale of this discovery and what was included in it. But a sign of the top echelons of military society, that these are the generals, the officers, the warrior class of the Mercians. Other remarkable finds from this kingdom from this time, the Litchfield Gospel Book, second really only to the Lindisfarne Gospels in terms of its beauty, and this, the um, Litchfield Angel, which was again quite a recent discovery, 2006, and it was a smashed up piece buried in the ground, when it was brought up, it was discovered to be the front of an altar. And it shows part of an annunciation scene as the angel sort of running in to Mary to go, hey, you're pregnant. Um, and the beauty of it, the skill of the drapery, the color, because it's still got its original paint on it in some places. It's showing that this is some of the finest work that's being produced in Europe at this time. The Carolingian Renaissance is bubbling away in Europe. Up here in Mercia, beautiful objects like this are being made. So it's a strong, powerful kingdom, but it's split, it's divided by these attacks of the Vikings. And we do forget in our historical trajectory that this country was not only settled, inhabited by Vikings, but actually ruled by Vikings. The three strands, of course, the Swedes, who tend to go away from Britain, they tend to head over towards Russia, the Norse, the Norwegians, who settle around the islands and down into Dublin and Ireland, Republic of Ireland. And then the Danes, the Danish, who are the ones that really lead the great heathen army, settle what is known as the Dane law. That whole point from the Thames to the Humber, where the northern part is directly ruled by a Danish ruler, by a Danish king. And... Hate to break this to you, everybody. 1013, we had a king of Denmark and of England. We had a Danish king, Knut. He's in Winchester Cathedral. Ooh, maybe what's coming later in Nina's lecture, I wonder. Ooh, I wonder. Um, but the timing, uh, the, the time in which she's born, the world she's born into, is the world of her father, Alfred the Great. I don't like hero-worshipping people of the past much, but Alfred I have a particular soft spot for. I think he had his head screwed on, uh, partly because he wasn't meant to inherit the throne. He was, after all his other brothers had died, he found himself in this awful situation, going, oh, God, it's me, isn't it? I'm the fourth, I'm the only one, I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? Um, and so, in, but into this um, 
I mean, I don't know if you can picture and imagine what it must have been like to be on the receiving end of this Viking heathen army, but they were breaking all the rules. So, for example, you wouldn't fight during the winter. You would overwinter, um, go back to your native lands and leave people alone, give them a break from being harassed and beaten and bullied. But they started to overwinter in England. They started to take town after town after town. And... Power, in terms of Alfred actually being a king of anything, was disappearing. He was more like a a, uh, war victim on the run, trying to hide, with his child Athelflaed in tow. And of course, we know the story of the burning of the cakes. But what that not true story tells us is that he was um, pushed into this terrain that was, um, you know, the Isle of Athene, it's it's surrounded by marshland. And he was holed up in this space, basically clinging on to any semblance of power he could keep. But out of this drama, out of this, this crisis point, he builds a new kingdom around this city, based around Winchester, which is why his statue is so poignantly standing on the roundabout, um, which was about investing in the future as well as protecting the present. Uh, We know about great military rulers. I was watching this new Netflix film about Henry V last night called The King, which is very good. But when we have a good military leader, when we have a leader who can take us into battle and win things, they're often so concerned about the immediate threat that they fail to prepare long-term. Alfred didn't. He did both. He battled, won wars, but long-term, he set up the Burridge system, all these fortified towns to try and protect communities, and he split his income 50-50 with the church in order to invest in education and the arts. I have said this before, I will say it again, many of our modern politicians could benefit from this 50-50 split. I'm happy to advise. Um, It's it's important that he leaves this legacy of education. He reinvests in... uh, in the church, because that is the seat of learning, that is where all of the writing is taking place, all of the cataloging, uh, all of the the future of, of his time, of his period will be documented. So, very famously, these two objects survive in Oxford. This one in the Ashmolean, this one in the Bodleian. I want to bring them together. It's only one road between them, but they originally would have accompanied one another, and. What you see here is an extraordinary document, a document written by the King of England. Now, most actual texts that we can attribute to a king come much, much later. Really, it's with Henry VIII that we start to get the king writing in his own voice and writing his own documents. Alfred did it right back 1,200 years ago, and he translated a book called Gregory the Great's Pastoral Care. And this is a passage from his opening. This is like his author's intro, if you like. He says, Then when I remembered how knowledge of Latin had formerly decayed throughout England, and yet many knew how to read the English writing, then I began, among other various and manifold cares of this kingdom, he did have various and manifold cares, I will give him that, um, to translate into English the book that is called in Latin Pastoralis, and in English shepherd book. Sometimes word for word, sometimes sense for sense, just as I had learnt it from Plegman, my archbishop, from Asser, my bishop, Grimmauld, my mass priest, and John, my mass priest. And he goes on to say how he worked hard at translating this, this book, which was written in Latin, into the vernacular. We forget that the language we speak to each other, our vernacular English, was a separate language to the language of the church, which was Latin. 
And of course, later on, the language of the court, which would be French. But English, to actually speak your common tongue and to translate religious books into the common tongue, we don't see things like that happening again until the Reformation. It's huge and important. And he did it to try and save, really, the, the future of the, of the English people who could not read Latin anymore. So he translates this work, but he also sends out these artworks, these astals. This is the Alfred Jewell. Beautiful. Who's seen it? You are good. Well done. Anyone who hasn't, that's your homework. Um, it's a stunning piece. It's a big piece of rock crystal with enamelling on the back. And you can see this image of sight, the, um, the sense of sight, which is both seeing with your eyes, but also insight, wisdom. So the cornucopia is holding a sort of overflowing with wisdom. And really, we didn't know what this object was. And we didn't know what an astal was, because in the end, he says, I send the book out with the astal. And what it seems is this astal was a handle for a pointer. And the pointer would have been used to read the text. Um, I borrowed this from Tom Holland, who I understand is here this morning. Tom Holland's written a wonderful book on Appleflood. And this is one of his illustrations from the book. Here's the Alfred Jewell. And here is Appleflood and her brother. Now, I don't really think it happened a bit like this. I think the Alfred Jewell is possibly not necessarily used by their teacher. But it gives us a sense of the court in which Athelflaed's being brought up. Her father educated her and her brother alongside each other, so they received an identical education. This is something we're still struggling with, even up until the last 100 years, that women were deprived an equal education. If they're deprived an equal education from DOT, how can they achieve the same things as their male contemporaries later in life? Well, Athelflaed got it from the beginning. Um, she achieved loads of things. This is great because I borrowed these images from a new Key Stage 2 book on Athelflaed. So she is now in the national curriculum. Yay! Go Athelflaed! Woo! So she is now going to be studied by people, which is great. But some remarkable things that happened through her life. So she's born 870. Um, really, it's going crazy in the, in the following, two, uh, following decade with Viking partitioning, Viking um, conquests. She gets married around the age of 15 to this much older nobleman of Mercia, Athelred. At first, it seems like your typical diplomatic marriage. Marry off a young girl to a powerful military older man, and that cements diplomatic links. That's how it seems. But what, see, what transpires from reading the charters that come out of their court in Mercia in the following years is right from the off, Athelflaed is, in, is absolutely determined to play a central role in the governance of her kingdom. So she starts signing off charters without her husband. She starts making military decisions without her husband. And as he gets older and more infirm, he passes over all his responsibility to his wife. He's very, very happy for her to rule in his stead. Um, we see uh, as it goes up to 902, Athelred becomes ill in 902. So Athelflaed increasingly becomes in charge of Mercia. And then he, um, he dies in 911. And from that point, there's a very critical moment. In the kingdom of Mercia, <laughs> there's two things that were... Hmm, Dodgy. The word queen was considered to be unapplicable, unusable, because a few generations earlier, there had been a queen of Mercia, wife of the king, and she had um, accidentally poisoned her husband. Accidentally. 
having taken all of his wealth and given it to all her favourites. So they didn't like the word queen. Instead, Athelflaed is lady of the Mercians. The other thing that's important, though, is in Mercia, there were still traditions where women could rule in a much more powerful way than they could here in Winchester, here in Wessex. So Athelflaed sort of had it going for her on that front. And when her husband dies, it should have really been put up to the nobles to elect the next strong man to lead the army, the next strong person that can be the military ruler of Mercia. But no, every nobleman, every member of the Witan asked for Athelflaed to rule them as Lady of the Mercians. So this is a conscious election, a conscious decision to keep this woman on as ruler of the kingdom. I think that's important. She does remarkable things in the wake of some pretty horrible things. So this is an image of the Danelaw. You can see that uh, around this point, it's around um, 860, this lowermost parts are connected. Athelflaed is running Mercia, and Wessex is being ruled by her brother, Edward. This whole area in, or in pink is the Danish territory, the Danelaw. And you have a smaller outpost of English resistance up in Northumbria. This is an incredible kind of division of the country along very dangerous lines. In these kingdoms, so in East Anglia, for example, you have very dramatic reports coming through of what happens to, Angli to English rulers. This is Edmund the Martyr, uh, Bury St. Edmunds. And poor old Edmund was um, tied up and shot, used as target practice. So martyrs are being made at this point. Again, from Tom's book, a very grim image of St. Oswald, the saint of the North. Great guy, he was a king. And he won a victory at Heavenfield, put up crosses. He was very cool. But eventually he was, he was defeated in battle by a Danish army who cut up his body. Torso ends up in Lindsay. Arms end up one in two other places. And his head now resides in Cuthbert's coffin in Durham. But it's also apparently here in Germany. This is also Oswald's head. There are also two other Oswald's heads. So he was a four-headed king, it seems. Um, but the idea of Oswald was really powerful. This idea of um, how Alfred the Great and Athelflaed, after him, wanted to preserve a sense of identity for the English. And the real bone of contention between those above in the Danelaw and those south in Wessex and Mercia was Christianity. One half were not, the other half were. So Alfred's investment in the church wasn't just, oh, I'm so holy, I'm so pious. It was a deliberate investment in what it was to be an English, English person at this point. And Athelflaed got the memo. She realised the importance of this too. And in her wonderful battles alongside her brother, they raid all the way up into Danish territory. They take a sort of crack squad up to Lindsay, and there they find the body of St. Oswald, the, the sort of this bit. And, um, and they grab this torso, bring it back to Gloucester, and Athelflaed sets up St. Oswald's Priory in honour of this relic. Um, so she's, she's harnessing this power of her father. 
She does a lot of amazing battles in the latter part as she's drawing towards the end of her reign. This is what Gloucester looks like after she's got her hands on it. She lays out the, the grid plan. She fortifies it. She puts Oswald's Priory in the middle as a sort of hub next to her court. Um, we know about how this sort of urban planning works here in Winchester, don't we? Because it's quite a deliberate way to lay out the streets around the churches. But she also takes all of these areas in the Danelaw. In a series of battles, she takes the five boroughs. She takes Leicester, she Tamworth, which was the centre of Mercia and had been taken by the Danes, Stafford, Derby, Nottingham, and very significantly Chester. Chester's rather fun because Chester is an example of how much foresight Athelflaed had. She could plan for the future. In 902... The, there's a, uh, the, the Vikings in Dublin are chucked out and they are wobbling around in the Irish Sea looking for someone either to attack or for somewhere to settle. Now, Athelflaed knows, oh my God, if I leave them floating out there for too long, they're going to come and raid all along my coastline. So I'll give them some territory. I'll give them the Wirral. Anyone from the Wirral here today? Big up the Wirral. Still Wirral Vikings, yeah? I still get told about the Wirral Vikings. So they're given the Wirral. And everyone's like, oh, you're appeasing the Danes. Why are you doing that? That's really weak. But she sets them up in this territory. And while they're there, she begins to fortify her main city in that region, which is Chester. And she pumps funds into Chester. She builds up new walls. Um, This coin that you can see from the time of her rule, she builds towers, she builds fortifications. Just in time, because by 907, the Wirral Vikings are getting bored. They're not happy with the Wirral anymore. I'm sure the Wirral is lovely, but they're not chuffed about being stuck in the Wirral. So they make the decision to attack Chester. And she has just finished the fortifications. So they attack, and in the process of attacking the walls, they throw everything at them. They throw hot oil and beehives. If you ever want to get rid of an invader to your property, forget about guns, it's beehives. Throw a beehive at them, because apparently it works brilliantly. The Wirral Vikings fled... Chester was intact. Athelflaed had saved the city and saved the future of that region by creating a powerhouse in Chester. Well done, Athelflaed. Um, God, I am going to run out of time. In terms of her as a warrior, now this is where I'm going to go next in this part of the talk. In my new book, I'm trying to show the different complexities of medieval women, the sorts of things they could do. And one of the things I'm going to go on and talk about in a minute is the idea that women could fight as men. It's one of those taboos, isn't it? It's it's still the same in sport as well. You know, women can do everything men can do up to a point, a point at which it becomes one of physical strength. And at that point, sorry, ladies, you're out. It's the men's business. Um, But in terms of Athelflaed, there are varying reports of whether she actually fought. Now, I'd like to also get you to think at this stage about what it means to be a warrior or a soldier. Many soldiers, officers in particular, the high ranks of the military, will not be going into the muddy banks of a battlefield and and doing all the physical grunt work. Um, They will be coordinating, they will be organising the troops, they will be making strategy, planning. And it's been, when it comes to Athelflaed, it seems to be one of two 
two pools of thought. Either she was a shield maiden, ripped skirts, you know, bare chest, running out, um, into the battlefield, or she had no involvement with with military activities whatsoever. I think there is somewhere in the middle of these two, which Athelflaed clearly inhabited. Because there are reports that come through of this very important battle, Battle of of Tettenhall, in August 2010. It's a direct retaliation from the fact that Athelflaed went and got Oswald's body from Lindsay. They are really annoyed that she snuck in and broke broke into the Danelaw. So they have this battle potently at a field called um, Wedner's Field, Woden's Field. Wolverhampton now, slightly less attractive name, I think. Um, And in this battle, the reports, not from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but from the Viking sources, say that three kings were killed. Three Viking kings were killed on that day. Eowils, Halfdan and Ingwar. They were the Norse kings of Northumbria, Viking rulers in Northumbria. And the account goes that Athelflaed walked off the battlefield holding the three swords of the three kings as a sign of her victory. Some people have dismissed this text outright. I think what it's showing is Athelflaed was there throughout the campaigns of her, of her army. She, we know that her and her brother were responsible for the two halves of the army, the Mercians and the Wessex parts of the army. And she was a leader. She was guiding them in battle. And yet, we don't like to think about women in this position. But I would suggest that women have been doing these sorts of roles in battle from forever. And this is one of my sources of evidence. It's a photograph. I took it the other night. There was a bit of a storm brewing. (laughs) Happened to get some good good angle. Um, It's the Valkyries riding over the skies, accompanied by flashes of lightning. And the Valkyries, you will know from Norse studies, which I'm sure you are all wonderful at, they are those women who collect the souls from the battlefield to take them either to uh, Odin in Valhalla or to Freya. And they are going to take these best of the warriors, the ones who have fallen with the most glory. And they are terrifying. The accounts of these women are terrifying. Um, We know her, maybe, some of you, if you watch the Vikings television show, Lagathar. A little bit of, I think, artistic license in that TV show. But nonetheless, some good insights into the Viking world. But Lagatha, we also know, existed. Lagatha was a real person. We have this text by Saxo Grammaticus, writing in the 10th century about the Danes. And he tells us about Lagatha. He says, Lagatha, a skilled Amazon, who, though a maiden, had the courage of a man and fought in front amongst the bravest with her hair loose over her shoulders, all marvelled at her matchless deeds, for her locks flying down her back betrayed that she was a woman. A woman. Um, And this idea of a fighting woman. Five, I only got five minutes left. You're joking. Right. Okay. Um, Damn it. Just warming up. Um, (laughs) Last year, there was this remarkable find, which has had a number of repercussions. It was work done in the University of Stockholm, uh, and it was a DNA analysis on a piece of bone and a piece of tooth. And um, 
what the analysis was being done on was a burial that had been found in 1886 in Birka in Sweden, declared one of the finest warrior burials ever discovered in the Viking world. You can see it here. This is the grave, Birka warrior grave. An individual that was originally enthroned and has sort of slumped over. Um, a sword, an axe, stirrups, an entire set of armour, two sacrificial horses, one a stallion, one a mare, and bizarrely, a gaming board with a full set of pieces on the chest of the individual. Seen to be incredibly high status. This is, a, uh, this is your officer's grave. This is, you know, your Nelson's tomb. Um, and this is what they thought it would have looked like. You know, very, very elaborate burial there. The DNA analysis on the bones conducted over 100 years later showed that, in fact, this male warrior in this incredible grave was a woman. And now it is known as the Burka Warrior Woman Grave. Now, this has been hugely controversial. So much so that the original team that made these discoveries were receiving death threats for trying to kind of stir up the world of, Vi of the Viking warrior class to this extent. Oh, God, who could possibly cope with the fact that a woman might be able to do this? Um, really, really dark side of academia coming out in all of these studies. But what, what I think we can say from what is now conclusively seen as the fact that this was a woman that was, that was certainly laid out in death as a warrior is it shows that women could occupy these positions of military leaders, strategists. Gaming boards and gaming pieces are very symbolic of these sorts of um, strategic insights that leaders would have to negotiate in other royal burials, you find kings and kings and warriors laid out with a gaming chest, gaming set on their chest, and it's a sign that they can anticipate, negotiate, plan, plot, scheme. So the fact that this woman has a gaming board on her chest, I think, is really symbolic. And it's showing us another aspect of this woman from the past. Women could hold lots of different positions within, uh, within Scandinavian society, particularly because of the activities of their male counterparts in the summer months. Going a Viking, when I use that for the word Viking, it's because the word Viking has been misused as sort of a racial catch-all. It's actually an activity that these Scandinavian people would embark upon in the spring and summer months, where they would go out raiding and trading, bringing back the resources they needed for the long, cold, hard winter. And in their absence, the women would run everything. They would have the keys to the treasure chests, they would run their estates, they would organise armies if that was needed. And um, some of the finery of these, these Viking women survive in their burials. Um, we also get burials like this. This is a burial, again, a Swedish burial, showing an, an older lady laid out in the guise of a seer, it seems, that she is a wise woman or a seer. She has a wand, a narwhal tusk as a wand, and a crystal ball. These are some finds that were discovered with her. And the crystal ball aspect is quite fascinating. We find quite a number of crystal balls buried with uh, Anglo-Saxon and Viking women. They are uh, crystal, rock crystal was at this stage in the, in the first millennium, the only truly clear material. Glass at this point wasn't translucent like we know it today. It was, it was thick, it was cloudy, it was colored. Rock crystal 
was a mystical object because you could actually see through it. And so when we find crystal balls, we don't know exactly what they're being used for, but their inclusion on a chatelaine, the fact that they're important enough to be buried with these women suggests they were used in something, some aspect of this person's life. This is me getting excited. <laughs> what a surprise. Um, in Gloucester Museum, because Gloucester, a bit like Jorvik, not quite to the same extent, but Gloucester has a waterlogged section, which has left archaeologists a beautiful document of perishables that otherwise wouldn't have survived. So I saw a shoe, an early medieval shoe, and I saw some early medieval hair. That's me really kind of getting up close and personal to those who have gone before. Uh, but I also saw Athelflaed's tomb cover, and this is all that remains that we know of of her burial. She is somewhere underneath St. Oswald's Priory in Gloucester. And why? I don't know how anyone in Gloucester sleeps with that knowledge. I would be out with a shovel from morning till night, every day, until I found her. Uh, that, I just don't know how they can sleep at night. But she is there, and more is still to be discovered. Her legacy, of course, is her nephew, Athelstan, the first king of all Britain. That's what he's called, Rex Totius Britanni. And um, Michael Woods has said, without Athelflaed, England might never have happened. This is an illustration from my second book, available to buy in the shop, which I will sign, um, where Athelflaed plays a major role in my fictional world that I've created. Because I think what happens as a historian, or what I've found has happened to me as a historian, is I feel so invested in these people through the contact I've had with them, through the artefacts that are associated with them, that being able to write them into a fictional world that I can imagine in my mind feels like the only outpouring <laughs> that I have left to express this sort of enthusiasm. I finished on the word enthusiasm. Is that all right? Right, there we go. A couple of medieval wonder women. <laughs> That was Yanina Ramirez speaking at our 2019 History Weekend events. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running lectures from our history events every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts on the American Civil War. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.